Today's scripture reading is from John 6, verses 15 to 21. Please read with me the verses in bold. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everybody, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you uh, to Lent at Grace Sacramento and to this next part of our sermon series we've been calling Encounters with Jesus. This morning, um, Jesus Walks on Water. In 2003, a comedy came out, a, a movie called Bruce Almighty. In this movie, a news reporter named Bruce Nolan uh, has lost his job. He's alienated his girlfriend. His life is falling apart. He's frustrated. He's complaining against God. Uh, who he says should be able to clear everything up in five minutes if he really was all-powerful and loving. Confronted uh, in a vision a few, mo a few moments later, uh, disgruntled Bruce is invited by God to take over being almighty. And endowed with mighty power, the movie cuts to a montage of Bruce using his new miraculous abilities for all sorts of self-centered and comedic purposes, including an epic scene where the camera angle draws down below Bruce uh, <clears throat> as a wind-blown Bruce in a diner spreads his hand and parts a bowl of tomato soup like Moses, like Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea in the Ten Commandments. Of course, all Sorts of mayhem ensues in the rest of the movie as Bruce attempts to fulfill his own desires to get the girl, to get the job, to embarrass his rivals, and ultimately to give everyone else what they want because that's what he thinks a loving God would do. Uh, it all leads to a climactic confrontation between Bruce and God where God says to him, parting your soup is not a miracle. Bruce, it's a magic trick. And when I read the passage about Jesus walking on water, that's my first question. Why? Why walk on water? Uh, it feels to me more like a magic trick than uh, some of the other things that we've read about in this series. There's nobody gets healed, right? Uh, nobody gets fed. No... Uh, no, no power of man gets confronted or deconstructed. And so my question is, is Jesus just showing off? Uh, we've been saying 
Every week in this series that in the Gospel of John, when uh, the writer of John, we think it's the Apostle John, uh, recounts a miracle in his uh, accounting of Jesus' ministry, he always uses this word, or most often uses this word, semia, which is the Greek word for assigned. He's very intentional. He doesn't use the Greek word teres, which would mean a wonder, or dunamis, which means a power or a show of power. He calls them signs, the things that Jesus does, because John takes pains to communicate that Jesus wasn't showing off. He, was, he wasn't just trying to draw attention to himself when he did these things, that he was always pointing towards something. He was always communicating something about who he was and what he'd come to do. So if that's the case, why include a story of Jesus walking on water? Where is he pointing? What's he communicating? How and how does that relate to our frustration, our anger, our discontent with God? This morning, Jesus uh, walks on water. I've entitled the, the sermon, It Is I, and I want to I look at the story on John of Jesus walking on water with three frustrated questions. Number one, why isn't Jesus already in my boat? Number two, what's with all the storms? And number three, who do you think you are? Number one, why isn't Jesus already in my boat? Verse 15 says that perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening had come, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Why are the disciples in the boat alone? Why isn't Jesus already in their boat? We don't have many stories in Scripture in which Jesus says, you guys go on ahead. I'll catch up with you. I'll meet you there. For the most part, being a disciple means following somebody. It means where Jesus goes, they follow. But in this case, they are ahead of him on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the easy answer uh, to this why question, why isn't Jesus in the boat, seems to be that this is actually the way that it happened. This story uh, is, is recounted in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. And all three of these accounts tell us that after Jesus fed 5,000 people, he, as the Gospel of Matthew says, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him. And I think the key to understanding why and what's happening is actually in verse 15 in the Gospel of John. It says there that when 5,000 people had been fed by five loaves and two fish, that Jesus, quote, perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. And so Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The scene is that 5,000 people, we think, as Pastor Daniel said last week, probably more, 5,000 men plus the women and children, have been miraculously fed by five loaves and two fishes. And there is a dramatic, there's a, an emotional movement within the crowd, a, a group realization of the power that Jesus possesses, a realization of the potential for that power to be used to achieve all the things that they've been hoping for. 
there seems to be a swell in the group towards Jesus. They're going to compel him. They're going to conscript him to be the king that they have been hoping for, to accomplish those things that they have long expected, that they have prescribed such a king would do, uh, probably including liberating them from Rome and everything else that goes along with it. And Jesus very quickly rejects the whole thing. In a matter of two verses, he has dispersed the crowd, withdrawn to the mountain by himself, and dismissed his disciples, pushing them off into a boat, apparently to separate them from this movement as quickly as possible before they too get contaminated by the ideas of the crowd. What is Jesus rejecting? Why suddenly disperse the crowd now when we heard last week he had insisted that everyone stay put even though they had no food? He said, let's, stick them, let's, let's have everybody stick around even though getting dinner was a legitimate need. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis imagines a tour group on a bus visiting the outskirts of heaven. Each member of the tour is eventually greeted by someone they recognize, someone who has already gone ahead of them and become a heavenly resident. And this, uh, in each of these encounters, uh, the, the tourist, the person getting off the bus, is invited to stay there in heaven and come into a deeper, come deeper into an eternal relationship in the presence of God. But sadly, each passenger on the bus has some criteria that, according to them, must be met for them to accept the invitation and stay. One passenger encounters a former enemy and will not accept that they, too, might be welcome in the presence of God. Another wants to be sure that the right kind of people, her kind of people, are the only kind of people populating heaven. Others insist on certain habits or possessions uh, that they think need to be allowed to come in with them for them to stay. They all have some prescription for God about what his eternal kingdom should be. Each one strangely blind to their own arrogance and lost to the fact that it's their own agenda that's actually precluding them from experiencing eternal joy in God's presence. Lewis writes, there's always something they insist on keeping even at the price of misery. There's always something they prefer to joy, that is, that they prefer to reality. It has a hundred fine names, Lewis says, wrath, revenge, injured merit, self-respect, tragic greatness, and proper pride. And whatever it is, it is the reason that they end up getting back on the bus and refusing to stay with God. Now, Jesus will eventually, in the Gospel of John, get a chance at the end of this chapter to describe himself as the bread of life. He's going to explain that his feeding of 5,000 people is a sign, just as God sustained the Israelites in the desert by sending manna, From heaven, God has sent Jesus into the world to give us new life that's going to lead on and last into eternity. But the crowd doesn't understand that yet, and they have seen his power, and they've got ideas about what to do with it. Uh, They haven't begun to understand him, and so they only see him as a means 
that might meet their own needs, their own short-sighted, self-involved, and probably ethnocentric agenda, their, their politics. He can solve their social problems. He can solve their economic and political problems. But Jesus won't get in their boat. I bet you felt that way. I know I have. Why won't Jesus just get on board with what I know needs to happen? Doesn't he know I need this job? Doesn't he know I won't be able to show my face if this doesn't work out? This is exactly what I prayed not to happen that is happening. I will refuse to believe that he loves me. In fact, I will refuse to believe that he exists if he takes this away, this relationship, this opportunity, this person that I love. Where is he while I'm out here in the storm? Question number two. What's with all the storms? Verse 18, the sea became rough because a storm, a strong wind was blowing, and then they rowed about three or four miles. There's actually two answers to the question, what's with all the storms? Uh, what geography says about storms on the Sea of Galilee and what the Bible is saying when it talks about storms at sea. Geographically, the Sea of Galilee is more prone to tempestuous waters than you expect uh, from a body of water that size. It's actually 682 feet below the sea level of the Mediterranean. It lies on the eastern end of a deep, narrow valley that magnifies the gusts of wind that blow through there, like the, the gusts of wind that feed the California wildfires into infernos. And so in the right conditions, the time... Uh, in the right conditions, the time it would take to row several miles out into the lake is plenty of time for wind gusts to go from zero to crazy, uh, for the water to wake up from a calm into a raging storm. And that's actually how the Greek word describes the situation. It says that it's waking up into a storm. The Bible consistently uses the sea, and particularly the stormy sea, as a metaphor for chaos and uncertainty. Genesis 1 says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. It's a description of God bringing order out of chaos. It's no mistake that when the prophet Jonah runs away from God, he finds himself in the midst of a, of a tempest at sea, a flood, and he prays and describes that he says, all of your, your waves and your, and your billows are passing over me. I've been cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas and into the flood. In the book of Revelation in chapter 21, uh, there the apocalypse describes the new heaven and the new earth. And it says that there will be a place that, that the new heaven and the new earth will be a place where the sea is no more. Not because we believe that the Bible is describing a place void of the beauty and of the majesty of the ocean, but because it's symbolic of a place where, that is no longer haunted by the chaos and uncertainty that human rebellion and godlessness has created on the earth. Now, the passage doesn't presume or suggest that there's a direct cause and effect relationship between the crowd's intention to use Jesus for their own means and a meteorological storm that occurs on the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't say that. But it does seem like the Gospel of John uses the opportunity to drive home the point 
about the chaos and uncertainty of presuming to be your own God. And isn't that what we're talking about here? A crowd thinking that they should tell the Son of God what his mission should be. As if a poll of what most people want is the way God should operate. That he should set up his redemptive plan by survey. In a subtle way, this is exactly what C.S. Lewis is describing in The Great Divorce. Each person gets off the bus and essentially tells God what God needs to do if he wants to be a part of their kingdom. It's what Bruce Nolan thought was the solution. He says, if, I were only, if only I were God, I could clear everything up in five minutes. It's what the serpent promised Eve in the garden when humanity first rebelled. He says, when you eat of the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like The problem, of course, is that we are not God. We cannot create. We do not know half of what we think we know, and we understand half of what we do know. And yet, we want to live as if we are almighty. We can't see even a fraction of the playing field, and we want to be the ones to throw the passes. Putting ourselves in the place of God, that is the Bible's definition of sin. Telling him what he needs to do to be a part of our kingdom. And, uh, and, uh, and, that, and uh, telling him to be th- what to do to be a part of our kingdom creates a world full of Bruce Almighty's. And a world full of Bruce Almighty's and Brad Almighty's and Sarah and Chris and Karen and Josh and Charles Almighty's. I'm not just picking on you people. But it's a world of chaos. And it's a world of clashing agendas, and it's dangerous, and it's painful, and it feels like being pommeled by waves and being cast into the deep as everyone's agenda clashes and runs over and destroys one another. And the waters close over, and the weeds get wrapped around your head, and they threaten to take your life. It shouldn't be lost on us that when the disciples get ahead of Jesus, they quickly find themselves in the midst of chaos. Question number three, who do you think you are? Here's what happens next. They saw Jesus walking on the seas, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, I think the point of the story is less about the apparent feat in which Jesus defies or bends the laws of physics that he somehow is subverting our understanding of displacement or rewriting the rules of liquid surface tension on the the top of uh, the Sea of Galilee. But, asterisk, for the record, the author of the laws of physics and of surface tension has every right to do with those laws what he pleases. But I think the point is more about who it is that is hovering over the surface of the waters. It's the same one who brought order out of chaos in the deep in the first place. The one of whom it says in the book of Job, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus is making a statement about who he is and he's making a statement about who gets to decide what God's agenda is. 
And if there is any question as to whether or not this is, is, is his intention in this moment, when he finally comes near enough to the boat and in the midst of the disciples' chaos and fear, he says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And the words that we have translated, it is I, are actually the Greek, ego eimi, which means I am. The exact same words we translate from the Septuagint in the Old Testament, when Moses asks for God's name in Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. The same words Jesus will use in the Gospel of John when he says, I am the living water. You go, me. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. Do not be afraid. Who is coming? Who is coming to us on the storm? I am. Do not be afraid. Who brings order out of chaos? I am. Do not be afraid. Who is God? I am. Do not be afraid. And when Jesus is recognized for who he is, in Matthew's account it says they worshiped him as the son of God. Matthew and Mark say that as soon as that happened, the wind ceased. John says that when they were glad to take him into the boat, they arrived at where they were going. At this point in the story, I'd like to point out that the Jewish people have not been liberated from Rome. Caesar has not been overthrown. Jewish enemies have not been vanquished. Who knows what else was included in all of the plans of the crowd who had sought to make Jesus king. But he has not done what they wanted. What has changed is that at least 12 guys and a boat have put him in his rightful place in their lives and in their hearts and made him who he is, God, I am. And on this night for them, there is calm. How do you do that? How do you let Jesus in and invite him to be the calm in your storm? It starts with recognizing the requirement and the prescriptions and the demands, all the prerequisites that you have uh, been requiring of God. Does that sound too complicated? Just ask yourself, why am I so mad at God? Why am I disappointed? Why do I want what I haven't got? What does he have to do before I will believe? And if you can arrive at an answer to those questions, tell him. Share that with him. Start looking for Jesus in the storm rather than looking for solutions and escape. That'll mean searching the scriptures for him, for certain. That'll mean trying to get to know him as he has chosen to describe himself and reveal himself in scripture rather than creating an image of him that we, as we think he ought to be. 
That means probably trying to use the scripture to interpret what you see going on around you rather than taking your circumstances and your expectations and using them to interpret the scriptures. You can expect that if you do that, uh, that you're going to discover sometimes that the Jesus you find in the scripture often uh, refuses the demands of people like you and me. That he often crosses our wills. In fact, do you want a God that does everything uh, that you want, or do you want an almighty God? One who does as he wills because he is good. One who frustrates our plans because our plans are too small. Here is his plan. God the Father sent his Son into the midst of human chaos and rebellion. But Jesus did not stay in the fray, but had the flood surround him. The waves and the billows passed over him. Wherever you are, he has been there, hungry, on the run, ganged up on, misunderstood, ignored, maligned, betrayed. When the scripture says, fear not, for I am with you, they are the words of the one who has truly been where you are. Even if you, as Psalm 139 says, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, he is there. And he is acquainted with your ways. And yet, he does not just accompany us in those places. The scripture says that while drowning in the consequences of our actions and sin is what we deserve, he was cast into the deep for us. When he cried out in frustration, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He received no answer. And in his death on the cross, in the words of Jonah, the weeds wrapped around his head. And he went down to the land whose bars are closed upon us forever and brought up our lives from the pit. This was his plan. This is always been his plan. It's what we see from the beginning to the end of the scripture. And while we don't get the explanations that we want, while we don't always know uh, why he has done what he has done in our little corner of reality, the scripture says that it has something to do with this. The bigger plan is this, that when Jesus gathered with his disciples, he showed us how he would redeem us. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in memory of me. And then after the meal, he took a cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to his disciples and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant in my shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. As often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We proclaim that God has shown us his redemptive plan. And we've been invited to be a part of it, and to be recipients 
of its benefit. My friends, Jesus died for you to forgive your sin and to welcome you into the presence of God. I don't know all of the other answers, but I know this is the big picture. And so we celebrate this meal to remind ourselves of the reality of God's plan. We touch and we taste and we know that Christ's feet on the water and his hands nailed to the cross are as real as these crackers and this juice. 